about two weeks ago, I got an email from a marketing company, church marketing company, and it was couched in such a way that I was supposed to be really, really excited about this, and I think there's some news here that, that maybe you should be excited about. And so I wanted to read this email to you, uh, and it's word for word what I saw on my little phone screen in front of me, even the highlighting, the bold, it's all the same. Okay, here's, here's uh, the advertising that I received. People often reevaluate their church commitments during the back-to-school season. That's true. After being away from the church all summer, people may have become less interested in their previous church. People will be in the market to try out a new church when the fall season rolls around. Many of these people will be seasoned churchgoers who may not have been completely plugged into their previous church and have just decided it's time for a church change. Now, this is what is really exciting. I hope this just gets you so jacked up. Back to school is a time when people are right. Woo! All right. Now we're getting somewhere. Introducing a relevant, timely fall series to your community and properly marketing it can and should be a part of your yearly marketing budget. If you advertise wisely, fall may just be the most fruitful season of the year for new growth in your church. Now, as I was reading this front page of this advertising campaign from a prominent church marketing business, let me just tell you what I, I read in my mind. The height of sheep stealing season is here. So go for it. Love it. Since American Christians do have a tendency to be religious consumers and walk away from commitments, you can use that to your advantage. Like the new boy who moves in next door while that tired old boyfriend has been away at summer camp, it's time to make your move. These dissatisfied people are low-maintenance, low-hanging fruit, not terribly connected and pretty easy to pluck, but fully seasoned from decades of Bible study and Christian upbringing. Back to school is a time when the kind of people you really want are ripe. It's time to reach out and snag people you think are between churches. They just don't know it yet. Does that excite you? Now, I, now this is, this is, I'm not kidding. This is like the leading church advertising marketing company. Uh, and, and so I'm reading this, and, and I get this email right in the middle of the series we were doing on the book of Acts. So I'm reading this email over here, and I'm reading the book of Acts over here. And I'm thinking, you know, in the book of Acts, we're looking at the boldness of the early Christ followers and how they're out there in this dark and dying Roman world, and they are sacrificially advancing the cause of Jesus Christ. And, and I'm reading all that, and I, I read this email, and I go, wow, we've, we kind of moved. We kind of lost something over the last 2,000 years. Somewhere along the way, we kind of lost our passion for sacrificially advancing the glory of Christ in the world and saving the world. We just kind of lost the passion for that. And then our new goal is, well, you know, let's just try to get sheep to move from one pasture over to another and call it good. I, I kind of wonder, you know, have, have we lost our heart in the middle of all this. I don't know what made me the angriest over this email that I received. Probably a couple of things. One of the things that kind of bothered me was these are marketing experts. These are advertising gurus. And it did not occur to them that I would have read this and been at all put off or offended. And the reason they didn't think I'd be offended by any of this is because here's the contemporary situation here in the 21st century in America. 95% of the churches are targeting the same 19% of the population that's already been reached. And, and we're all shooting for the same ever-shrinking piece of the pie. What that means is now, here's what churches are doing. 
We're not competing against the kingdom of darkness. We're competing against other churches to try to reach the already reached. Our, our, our goal now, the big prize, is getting people who've already been gotten. That just seems kind of weird to me, but I think probably the thing that just bothered me the most was the last line. Let me just read this again. This is the original email. If you advertise wisely, fall may be just the most fruitful season of the year for new growth in your church. Now, I, I want you to listen really carefully to this. If only already reached people come to the church, the church has not grown. Okay, don't, don't get me wrong. I, I love sheep. I happen to be one. And when sheep relocate from one community to another and they find this to be a great church home for them, I'm excited. I'm happy about that. And I know from time to time things go wrong in a sheep pen and they want to kind of change. I, I get it. I understand that. But sheep moving from one pasture to another pasture does not equal church growth. You didn't have new sheep that were born. You didn't have old goats that got transformed into new sheep. You just had sheep that relocated. Because when it comes right down to it, there's really only one church, and that's his church. Because the church is the, it's the followers of Jesus Christ everywhere. And so if you have sheep that move from one pen to another pen or one pasture to another pasture, his flock didn't grow. There was no real growth. But here's the thing. Somewhere along the way, we started thinking along the lines of, well, this isn't his church. It's, it's our church. And then we started thinking along these lines. We started thinking that real victory is not defined in terms of disciples making disciples that make disciples. Real victory is defined in terms of super flocks and their pastors encouraging sheep to move from somebody else's pasture into their own pasture. And somewhere in the mix of all of this, we just basically we abandoned the messiness of ministry. Here's what I mean. The messiness of ministry is you take a you take a life that's been healed by Jesus Christ and you pour it out into another life that's broken. That's messy. We stopped embracing the messiness of ministry and, and, and here's what we did. We started embracing the safety and the, the sanitary distance of tasking a marketing company to send out postcards to the already reached and then just calling it good. When I look at the book of Acts on the one hand and I look at the state of the American church on the other, I just kind of think, man, we sort of lost our heart for the people for whom Christ died. So when I get this email, it kind of breaks my heart. And actually, when I, when I read the email for the first time, I, I reread it. And then I read it again. It's like, am I being too harsh here? It's like, no, actually, it kind of, it, it, it got me choked up to think that we got to this point. We've been in the book of Acts, and we're wrapping things up today. And I have to say, I didn't know how to wrap this up because we didn't spend much time in the life of the Apostle Paul. Half the book of Acts is kind of about Paul, really, and his missionary journeys and all the rest. It's too, too much to condense into one thing. But I have to say, if you ever have a chance to sit down and read through the book of Acts, one of the things that's just going to strike you is the, it's the lengths to which the original disciples, including Paul, went to reach people. An amazing, an amazing boldness. And there's something about reading through the book of Acts and noticing the passion and the boldness of the early church that just kind of makes you ask the question, how far does love really extend? And for Paul, it extended a long, long way. Uh, 
Paul just, he, he, he would stop at nothing. He would go to all kinds of lengths to reach, reach people. We don't have time to go through the whole life of Paul. But I think the life of Paul or the ministry of Paul is, well, the pattern is pretty much established in chapter 9. Paul is saved, and then he finds his first place of ministry in the city of Damascus. And when he's in Damascus, he's arguing. He's just barely a Christian. I mean, he's very well versed in the Bible, and he saw Jesus, and so he's qualified. But he starts arguing with the Jews, debating with the Jews, proving to them that Jesus is the Christ. That's what it says in Acts chapter 9, verse 22. Here's what the next verse tells us. This is right at the front end of Paul's ministry. After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. But Saul, that's Paul's Hebrew name, but Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. And so almost from the point of Paul's conversion, he was a basket case for Jesus Christ. And he's always pressing as far as he can until he nearly gets killed, and then somehow he gets away, or God opens a door for him to escape and survive. And that's kind of the pattern that you see for the rest of Paul's life. And, and, and he's just pressing until he nearly gets killed, and, and he actually presses and presses until he actually gets killed, beheaded in Rome in A.D. 67. When you follow the life of Paul, you see he, he just, he just he's going to stop at nothing. He's going to go anywhere, do anything. There's the first missionary journey, can't get enough. Goes on a second missionary journey, can't get enough. Third mission, missionary journey, can't get enough. And, and along the way, he does all kinds of extraordinary things. And at some point or another, maybe he actually went to Spain. Romans chapter 15 tells us that Paul wanted to go to Spain. And there's some, at least some early church fathers that said that he actually did. We don't have an actual record of this, but that was his heart, was to go as far as he possibly could to the uttermost reaches of the, basically the, Roman Empire. He stops at nothing. And sometimes he, he gets nearly killed, gets stoned, and then he gets up and goes back into town. He'll, he'll have an opportunity to escape from prison, and he stays simply because he wants to minister to the jailer. He just, he'll stop at nothing to reach people. Because at least in the, the mind of the Apostle Paul and in the mind of many people in the early church, there is no, there was no boundary to how far God's love would go. And if God's love is going to go that far, God's love is going to take you that far with people. And it's not just geographically. Look at how far Paul is willing to go, at least in terms of his attitude or his disposition. He's describing how he was on his missionary journeys. This is over in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 22. He says, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jew, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law. And you say, well, what's Christ's law? And Paul actually summarizes this for us over in Galatians chapter 5, verse 14. He says, the whole law can be summed up in one command, love your neighbor as yourself. That's the law of Christ. He says, to those not having the law became as one not having the law, to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak, to win the weak I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. And we see that disposition in Paul, we see that in the early disciples, and we see the passion and the sacrifice and the willingness to just cross all kinds of boundaries and do whatever they can to reach people in spite of sacrifice and threats and persecution and all the rest. And it, it just kind of makes me ask the question after having gone through the book of Acts, how far does love go? 
to what extent do we love? Okay. Who, who is my neighbor? And fortunately, Jesus answers this question for us pretty plainly. To what, ex- to what extent does love go? Does it just go to the people who are like me? Is that my neighbor? To everybody who's, you know, believes like I do, has the same values that I do, same religion that I do? Or does it go to people who, I don't know, are kind of like me because nobody's exactly like me and they kind of believe like my, I do and they sort of have the same values? Does love extend that far? Or does love extend even to people who aren't like me at all, don't share my values, and actually choose values that are antithetical to mine? They actually choose entirely different lifestyles. Does love extend to them too? Or does love even extend to those who would do me wrong? Does love even extend to my enemies? Does love extend to the people, I don't know, in in some cases trying to take my children or grandchildren or take my job or ruin my reputation? Does, Does love extend that far? Jesus answers for us the question, how far does love extend? And and that's a question that Acts raises, it kind of answers, but I love the way Jesus answers the question over in Luke chapter 10. So we're going to close with this passage. The uh, the whole series on Acts, we're actually ending in Luke. I know, it's weird, but hey, what are you going to do? You're stuck. Uh, Luke chapter 10, verse 25 and following. Let's go ahead and read this together. Here's what the scripture says. On one occasion, an expert in the law, and we're talking about a religious expert, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus, which by the way, when you try to test Jesus, oh man, you're going to, you're going to fail the test. Okay. Which is, I just kind of, this occurred to me today. You'll recognize that whenever Jesus argues with somebody, he never says, oh, you've got a really good point, or let me change my mind, or I need to rethink my life. He is, he all, he always comes out on top. He never changes. He never repents. He never says, oh, you know, I'm kind of wrong or I was 90% there. Which either Jesus is incredibly arrogant or he's God. Just looking at how he deals with people and, and they always in the end submit to what he's thinking. That's showing you he's either God or he's incredibly arrogant. But there's no, oh, he's a good teacher, but I happen to just disagree with him. And I just think he never could see that he was wrong. No, you've got a choice to make. Just looking at how Jesus deals with people in arguments demonstrates it's one or the other. You can't sit on the fence with Jesus. So he's, this, this guy comes to test Jesus, and the reason this man comes to test Jesus is because he notices something in Jesus that really bugs him. Jesus sits down with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and eats with them and drinks with them and shares the table with them. And, and if you're a religious person, you kind of look at that and you go, well, does Jesus value a warm heart and a friendly spirit and an accepting attitude, but he doesn't really care that much about godly living. And so you've got a religious conservative or maybe a fundamentalist who's looking at Jesus as a liberal. He says, I'm going to test you. I'm going to see if you're really serious about God and what he teaches and and, and holy, righteous life. So that's what's going on. So the expert of the law questions Jesus, and he says this, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responds, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And then the expert in the law answers this way. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus said. Do this and you'll live. Do that and you'll inherit eternal life. Now here's where it gets kind of complicated because the man goes, okay, this is how it is. But then he goes, if this is how I inherit eternal life, love my neighbor as myself, are there some restrictions or boundaries? Because to love your neighbor as yourself means that you will meet all of their needs with as much passion and joy and energy and force and immediacy as you meet your own needs. 
where you're happy only if they're happy because your happiness is entirely wrapped up in their happiness, and if they're not happy, you're not happy. You've got to love your neighbor as yourself. And you say, well, can you really do that? I think some of us, we may approximate that a little bit with a few people, like a husband or a wife sometimes, and maybe with your children. Uh, just this last week, you know, Gina's vehicle, I had, I don't know, about 480,000 miles on it. And uh, it was like, okay, it's time to get another car. We've got to fix this. And so she went and got a new vehicle, and, and, and she deserved it. And I was happy for her, really. No kidding. It's fantastic. Uh, I know, no, really, I actually was happy for her. No kidding. And, and perfectly happy? Well, I don't know, because when I drove it, I was like, eh, I'm not real happy about my truck now. But that's okay. But, you know, I'm happy because she's happy. And you're happy when your children are happy. And when they're not happy, you're not happy. Are you perfectly happy when they're happy? Well, I don't know, but maybe pretty close. We can kind of get it. But how far does that extend? I mean, how purely happy do you need to be? And how many neighbors do you have to be happy with? Does that include the person who's suing you to take custody of your grandchild or visitation rights away from you? Does that include the person who's ruining your reputation? I mean, how far does this go? And so the teacher of the law gets really concerned. I answered correctly. (gasps) So he wants to justify himself. That's what's going on in verse 29. But he, the expert in the law, wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus says, hey, that reminds me of a story, which when it's story time with Jesus, then you're really in trouble. And, uh, and, and with that, let's go ahead and stand out of respect for, for God, who is uh, speaking to us through his word. This is one of the more famous stories that Jesus ever tells, and it's one of the most influential that most people are kind of familiar with it, even if they're not a Christian or don't know the Bible. It's, it's a very popular story. Hopefully we'll understand just how insightful Jesus is. In reply, verse 30, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, Jesus is uh, thoroughly a genius, and his genius throw, shows through here in so many different ways. One of the ways you can see the genius of Jesus is he actually very well addresses the three major limitations we put on love, the, the major boundaries that we want to identify as somehow restricting or limiting our neighbor love. He addresses the boundaries of who and when and how much. First of all, let's talk about the boundary of who. It's very natural for you and for me to want to give and aid and assist and help people who like you or who are like you or who you like. But in the face of this very natural tendency, Jesus tells a story where the two central characters 
naturally butted heads. Samaritans and Jews did not get along at all. In fact, the Jews really basically thought it was their right to hate Samaritans. And so Jesus, in making the story about this Samaritan helping a Jew, is communicating essentially, don't you dare put any boundaries on the who. You know who your neighbor is? Your neighbor is anyone who has need. Absolutely anyone. So he addresses the who, but he also addresses the when. And here's what I mean. I think a lot of us, we, we want to go, well, I want to help this person, but are they the deserving needy or are they undeserving needy? Which, which category do they fit in? Is this person a victim of circumstances beyond their control or did they bring it on themselves? Is this person in the state that they're in because they were asking for it? Because I want to help the person who's a deserving, needy person, but I don't know about those other undeserving types. In this story, you know what's so beautiful? Jesus tells it in such a way that you just can't tell if this man is a deserving, needy, or undeserving, needy person. And here's why. He's been stripped naked. I mean, there's nothing about the scene where you can really discern because he's just a naked dude that's just been beaten up. You can't discern, did he deserve it or did he not deserve it? But beyond that, just the questions that you would have about, well, what, what really happened here and why? From the standpoint of the Samaritan, this Jew deserved it. I don't have to know all the circumstances going on. He's a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. He had it coming. Imagine a Jew walking down a path, I don't know, in the 1940s, Germany, and they see a Nazi lying there gasping for life. You don't have to know all the circumstances. That guy deserved it. Why? Because he's a Jew. Or he's a Samaritan. Or a Nazi. And the other says, well, he's a Samaritan. Just because of the person that they were or the class of which they were a part, this Samaritan's attitude was not, hey, I need to help this person because he deserved it. No, I'm going to help this person in spite of the fact that they got what was coming to them. You say, well, I don't know about helping people if they're the undeserving needy. Well, I'm not talking about I'm not talking about empowering somebody in their sin or enabling, as people call it. But let me ask you this. Did Jesus Christ love you and come down to you and show mercy to you and have pity on you and do what he needed for you when you were empty and spiritually hungry and broken because of the foolishness of your sin? We love others the same way Christ loved us, right? It's not that complicated. So Jesus absolutely destroys and blows up the boundaries of the who and the boundary of the when. And then when it comes to another boundary, he addresses that as well. It's the boundary of the how much. Because it's a pretty common thing for people to say, well, I'd really like to get involved and I'd really like to do this, but I don't have enough time. I don't have enough resources. And I'm not saying we have to do everything for everyone. We talked about this last week. You can do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. But if you do for one in the way God would have you to do for one, here's what often happens. You are bearing their burdens. Galatians chapter 5 tells us that we should bear one another's burdens. You don't get involved in somebody else's life without feeling it. If you say, well, I just give and, and, you know, out of my abundance, well, you, then you're not really quite understanding this. If you're going to enter into somebody else's life, you're going to feel the burden. And that's always the case, always, always, always the case when you enter into another person's life who is broken because broken relationships will wear on you. There's a cost that's involved in this. You know, what's really interesting here in this story concerning the how much. You look at the Samaritan and you look at what he gave, but beyond just all the things that he did, you know what else you can notice? 
Think about the place where Jesus tells this story took place. He doesn't say, hey, some robbers came along and beat this guy up on a road somewhere. He says, no, on this, you know, on this road, and he talks about the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It was a certain path with which everyone was familiar. And it was called in that day the path of blood or the way of blood, the bloody path. You know why? Because this particular place is where people, if they were walking along, were commonly beaten up and killed by robbers and bandits. So you know why these two very religious people stepped by? You remember the part in the story where it says about the, you know, the Levite and the priest, and they saw him, and then they just kind of stepped aside and walked on? You know why they did that there? Because they're smart people. Priests and Levites, they're smart people. And they recognize if this person is still breathing, they can't move, but they've been beaten up, and they can't get up, and they can't help themselves, and, but they're not dead yet. You know what that means? Well, probably the people who did this to him aren't too far away. And I'm not going to slow down. And I'm not going to burden myself with them because then I'm putting myself in danger too. So when the Good Samaritan stops on this particular bloody path and sees this person who cannot help themselves and apparently he can't walk, can't crawl, totally helpless, and he gets down off of his donkey, down to this person, tends to his needs, puts him up on the donkey and slows his own journey, he's putting himself at risk. He's risking everything for this Jew on the ground. Besides that, obviously, we see that the Samaritan provides everything he needs. He gives him medical care, he gives him food, gives him shelter, comes down from his place of, I don't know, safety into his world like Jesus does. He doesn't just do the financial investment. He, he makes it personal, okay? And you can also see it's long-term, not just short-term, because he says, I'm going to come back. He says to the innkeeper, you take care of this, here's the two, two denarii, and I'm going to come back later. Because I'm not just dumping them off. I haven't just done my duty. Now I'm leaving. I'm personally invested in this person's life. And so I'm in his life for the long term until he's restored. And I can see that he's well and on his feet again. When you look at the story of the Good Samaritan, you see that there was not a single thing that he could have done that he didn't do. So after Jesus tells this whole story, blowing apart the limitations of who and when and how much... He basically is communicating to the expert in the law, hey, all you have to do to inherit eternal life is love your neighbor as yourself without any boundaries whatsoever, period. That's all you got to do. Perfectly love everybody, fully, without reservation and limitation. To which we all go, yay, I could do that. No. Actually, if you just get to this point in the story, you're going to go, Ugh. well, I better, I better work harder. I better try harder. I better grit my teeth and mm, do better to love people. And I brought some toothpaste today, you know, for the caring place, but I'm going to go get some more. You know, does that? No. Jesus doesn't tell this story just to put guilt on you. That's not it. So I'm going to tell you something that you never thought you'd ever hear a pastor say. So here we go. Do not try to be more moral and more religious. Do not try that. Don't do it. You know why? Because it doesn't work. You notice there were two uh, minor characters in the story, the, the priest and the Levite. You remember what they did? They saw this person in need, and they just kind of stepped aside and kept going. You know what the priest did and the Levite did? They both have essentially one of the same obligations. Their job was to take care of the poor. They were the ones who distributed alms to the poor. It was their job. 
And Jesus said, these people, they knew their job. They knew their moral obligation. They knew what their calling was. That was their whole occupation. And if they just kind of pass by, you know what Jesus is communicating? Here's what he's teaching. Here's what he's showing you and showing me. Simply knowing what the rules are and knowing your duty and gritting your teeth and just trying to do better is not going to cut it when it comes to loving people so radically as Jesus requires. You, know, you can't just grit your teeth and try harder. That's not going to work. It'll take you a little ways down the road. It'll make you maybe a little bit more generous. It might make you feel a whole lot more guilty when you're falling short. But it's not going to change you. And it's not going to change the world to go, well, I feel really bad and I better try hard. Mm, that's not it. What do you need to do? Well, it, it, here's what you need to do. You don't try harder to give what it is that you do not have. You need to recognize that you need to receive something that you've not received so that you can give something that you cannot give. And in the story, it becomes very apparent to the, to the expert in the law that he doesn't have what it is that he needs. Because by the time the story's over and Jesus says, well, who's the neighbor? The man can't even say Samaritan. He just says, well, the guy who showed mercy on him. He's kind of feeling the weight. You know why he's feeling the weight? Because he knows what I know and what you ought to know. And that is nobody can really love the way Jesus is telling us to love. Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, now some of you, you're, you think of specific instances in your life. You've got an ex. You have somebody that you're in a custody battle with. You have somebody who's done you wrong, bad reputation. You have somebody that just, that just kind of hurt your feelings. And Jesus says, love them, with, love them like you love yourself. Be as passionate about meeting their needs as you are passionate about meeting your own needs. And you say, well, I'm just not doing that. I can't do that. I can't just grit my teeth and do that. You know why not? Because like me, inside, you're broken. I don't love my neighbor as I love myself. I'm just, you know, a lot of times I'm trying to do that within my own family. I try to do that with staff. And I recognize I don't love people the way Jesus does. And I'm not bragging about that. It's like the natural state of our hearts to be self-interested and to put ourselves ahead of other people. This Pharisee is not, this teacher of the law has not been let off the hook. He was looking for the basic minimal entrance requirements into heaven when he died. What's the bare minimum where I can meet the standard of loving my neighbor as myself? And Jesus sets the standard so high, there's no way if he's a smart person that he could ever meet those requirements. He recognizes what you should recognize, and that is, I'm the broken person. I'm the one down on the ground. I'm not the Samaritan up on the horse. I'm the guy down in the dirt needing rescue. I love the way Jesus tells the story. It's so brilliant. He doesn't tell the story as if the Jew's up on the horse and the Samaritan's down on the ground. It's like the Samaritan's up on the donkey and the Jew's down on the ground. Jesus does answer the Samaritan's que the, the teacher of the law's question. He says, okay, I'll tell you how to inherit eternal life. I'll tell you who your neighbor is. But the angle that Jesus takes is brilliant. Here's what he does. He's saying, what if you were the person down on the ground? Because that, that's you. You're the Jew. What if you were the one down on the ground? What if life were ebbing out of you? What if you were the one bleeding to death? What if the only hope for your life was an act of sheer grace from someone 
that you were actually not real thrilled about, that you actually had rejected, that you considered to be an enemy? What if you were the one on the ground and the only way you could be saved was by the grace from someone who absolutely did not owe you love. In fact, they didn't owe you mercy. In fact, they owed you exactly the opposite. Would you want that grace? In the parable, Jesus is not pointing, hey, here's the rule you need to do better on, or you need to you know, grit your teeth and do your duty. That's not it. We don't need a rule. We know the rule. We need someone else to rule our heart because our heart is broken. We don't need just more duty. We need a whole new dynamic in our life. It's not duty, it's dynamic. See, the only way you're ever going to get up and I'm ever going to get up and, and not in a moralistic, superior, prideful way look down our nose at people who aren't like us and sneer at them, the only way we're ever going to do that is we have to receive something that we need. We need to be in a position where we can say, you know, I'm not any different than you because I was broken, I was bleeding, I was dying, I... I was not where I needed to be. I knew I needed to be this way, but I wasn't. I know I needed love this way, but I couldn't. And I was in bondage to sin. And it's not just the actions. It was just the attitude and disposition of my heart. But someone came along who did not deserve to give me, didn't have to give me mercy. I didn't deserve the mercy. Actually, I deserved entirely opposite. And this person, by sheer grace, came down from on high and set me on high. And they didn't have to do it. And they did it at tremendous risk and cost to themselves. Until you've got that dynamic... You're not in a position to do what it is that is required by the law for you to do. What Jesus is getting at is real simple. You'll never be the neighbor you need to be until you've received the perfect neighboring from a perfect neighbor. Now you say, well, how do I get that dynamic? Where do I get in on this relationship? Okay, I think you've been coming here, most of you, for a while. Here's where you get it. It's in the gospel. You know, surprise, it always comes back to Jesus. Yeah, I know, you're on to me. Yeah, it comes back to Jesus because the gospel is Jesus saw us on the bloody path. And actually he came. And when he was coming along the path that we walked, he saw us in our need and desperation and he did what he needed to do. Not because we deserved it because we were the deserving needy. No, no, no. Actually, we were the undeserving needy. Actually, we kind of deserved what we got and then some because the reality is He's our creator. We didn't give him our due. We decided we want to rule our own lives. And when you rule your own life, things don't go so well. Wherever we were in our sin, we deserve to be there. But Jesus got down from on high and he picked us up and he seated us where he was seated. And he didn't just think, this is going to risk me something. No, he knew it was going to cost his life. He recognized that in order for us to be healed, he would have to be beaten and bloodied and destroyed He's the good neighbor. That's why the Bible tells us, He who knew no sin became sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. He traded places with us. He's the good Samaritan. A lot of times we don't read the parables appropriately because we don't know where we actually fit in the parable. And I'm going to tell you just straight up where you fit in the parable. When you come to the Bible, there's always only one hero, and that's Jesus. He's the good Samaritan. You and I, we're down on the ground. That's where we are. And when you recognize that, And when you recognize what you've received and you drink deeply of and receive what it is that he has to give, then and only then do you get up and have a different heart and have a different attitude and have a different disposition to people. Because what you need and what I need is not just to try to do better, to be moral and more religious. We need to understand a little bit better and more appreciatively what was done for us and where we were. 
Now, it's true what Jesus says. This is the only way you can have eternal life. To love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. Perfect love without the boundaries of who or when or how much. And you say, well, then I'm sunk if that's the case. Yeah, you would be sunk except for the fact you have a perfect neighbor who lived the life you should have lived and died the death you should have died. So you've got to be crushed. And in a certain respect, in this parable, Jesus crushes us with an understanding of the mercy that we ought to be giving to one another. But we're only crushed by that mercy, so we're in a posture or a position to receive the mercy that he gives to us by the Good Samaritan. You see the genius of Jesus? He humbles us and simultaneously he lifts us up at the same time. And that's what liberates you to do what it is that he would have you to do. To have a limitless, boundless love, not boundaried by who or when or how much. And that's why we do what we do here as a church. And I'm, you know, I was talking to Wayne Doss just yesterday. He was up here, you know, you know, super deacon. If you don't know Wayne, I mean, seriously, just wonderful person. Up here mowing, and I found, he found some keys out there. And, and then he had to come back to the church, and this is when I saw him. He found some keys that were in the grass, and he had printed a sign and put a sign together and stuck it up. So if somebody came looking for the keys, they would say, hey, your keys were here. You can call me. And and, you know, I'm like, why don't you just turn the keys in his office and maybe somebody could call. But no, you know, going the extra mile. And so he's up here doing that, and I'm talking to Wayne, and Wayne's just saying, you know what? I'm so excited about where the church is right now. And I'm like, I was too, but you can tell me why. He said, just people have this disposition of just wanting to get out there and serve people and reach people. You know what that is? That's the Holy Spirit. That's boldness, not the arrogant boldness but a humble boldness or a bold humility that recognizes I've been served the way I've been served. And I've got too much inside of me to hold it back. And so I'm going to do this not so as to earn or inherit the eternal life through my efforts, but I know I've been given an eternal life by a perfect neighbor, so I can't help myself but want to be a good neighbor to other people. And it shows in terms of people's willingness to take risks and do things and reach out, and you're doing that. Three weeks from now, we're going to have around this, this auditorium table set up of the different ministries that we're a part of. I want you to come on that Sunday in particular and see what all is going on. But there are some additional things that we are kind of thinking that the Lord put on our hearts to do. And specifically, we have this little culture team that was thinking about, hey, here's our community, here's our particular DNA, here's the needs, and, and when all these circles combine, how, how does this intersect, and what do we need to do, and and, and there were four things in particular that came out, and we put those before you last week. You got the insert again. And, and one of the things was just mentoring, mentoring people on parole. Three people said, you know, I can do that. I want to do that. We've got this jail right up the street, and some of you are just in a position to do that. That's fantastic. We also kind of put out the request for, hey, we've got a school nearby, and it's not doing real well, and they need tutoring, and they're open. They're, they're, they're so in need that they're all, they'll actually let the church come and help. Okay, And so we got 13 people saying, as of last week, we want to come and, and tutor kids. Another thing that we can provide to the community just in terms of actual practical display of God's love and forming connections is just you know hobbies and interests and that kind of thing. had about eight people say they want to help with that. We had eight people say, I want to do some job training and the rest. And we're just still trying to get together all the people that are interested so we can put those teams together within the next three weeks, and, and Brad's leading the charge on that. And if you're interested, please fill that out. Get it to Brad. Maybe get it to me afterwards so we can know who's interested in these things. And I know some of you know what's going on for me. You know, do, what, you know you're going into a bar on Sunday nights. Well, that's three weeks from tonight. Here, here, it's real simple. On Sunday nights, I'm going where I never go, 
to preach Jesus to people who never are where I am. It's not that complicated. And I know what's in my heart is in your hearts, and it's showing up in a beautiful way. And I'm so happy to be a part of a church family that gets it. Keep up the good work, but you're not doing it, hopefully, out of guilt or trying to prove yourself or some sort of weird one-upmanship. Here's why we do what we do. Because Jesus did it for us. We were the ones on the ground. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the love and the grace you've shown us, not just from a distance, but up close and personal. You're not just the the one we imitate from afar or study from a distance of some 2,000 years. You personally came down and entered into our lives in the most personal way, and you held nothing back, and you didn't just risk your life, you gave it. You reached down, you picked us up, and in doing so, you allowed yourself to be taken down, beaten, bloodied, and killed for the likes of us. Going the distance, not just to death, but actually descending into hell for the sake of us. Lord, that used to move the church to sacrificial love and sacrificial giving and sacrificial investment. And I pray that it will move us once again. Give us your heart for people. Restore unto us a vision for what it is that you can do and make us passionate about winning the lost. And we pray this in Jesus Christ's holy name. Amen.